0: So, reading from Matthew comprises what you might call a bit of a sort of a three-way argument. Um, If there's any wrestling fans among us, it might be like a little sort of triple threat match. Um, Obviously there isn't, uh, just me. (laughs) Um, But in verse 23, we're introduced to this group called the Sadducees. Um, If you're not familiar with the Sadducees, if you've not come across them before, they're described by John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3 earlier on in the book as a brood of vipers, um, which might give you a little bit of an idea. (coughs) And they were a group of religious leaders, perhaps even more strict than the Pharisees. Um, they believed that the first five books of the Old Testament were inspired by God, only the first five books. Um, they desired, denied the existence of spirits and demons and this type of thing. Um, and crucially for this passage, they didn't believe in the bodily resurrection of the dead. So in verse 24, they come to Jesus with almost a ludicrous scenario, really, that we've read about. A woman who, who married seven different brothers and they all die. Uh, and then she dies, and they want to know which one is she going to be married to in heaven. <clears throat> and this scenario served no other purpose other than really to cause an argument, um, and to give them an opportunity to kind of demonstrate their intellectual prowess somewhat. And as he so often does, Jesus sees straight through the charade that they're putting up, and straight through to their real motives, and he says to them, in essence, look, you're not, you're not interested in knowing the scriptures, you're not interested in knowing the power of God, you're not interested in humbly seeking to understand more about God. You've just come for a row. You know All you're interested in doing is reinforcing your own intellectual prowess and basically trying to publicly prove in front of everybody that you're the most intelligent group of Bible scholars that are here. The only thing at stake here is your reputation when there are far more important issues at stake. But regardless, Jesus decides to play the game. And not surprisingly, he wins them over with a brilliantly simple piece of logic, I think. Um, And he says, if God describes himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, they're they're all dead. Now, God refers to himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in, in the book of Exodus, years and years later after Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have all died. Now, surely that makes God either the God of dead people, or he must still be, in relationship with them, thus disproving the idea that the Sadducees had of there being no bodily resurrection. In essence, Jesus, he masterfully reinforces the point that he's already made, which is that they don't know the Bible, they don't know the scriptures, and they don't know the power of God. And on hearing this, that Jesus has reportedly won up to one of their rivals, our old friends the Pharisees decide to try and get involved. And they say to themselves, Look, we'll try and succeed where they failed. I'm assuming there was some kind of rivalry between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. I'm guessing so because they differed theologically on quite a lot of stuff. Um, so they saw this as a perfect opportunity to further their own reputation. Okay, we've got a chance to make ourselves look good here. And a similar thing happens again in verse 36. They come to Jesus with an equally nonsensical question, really. They say to him, Which commandment is the greatest? And there's a little sidebar, apparently, a, a A pastime that the Pharisees used to like to try and indulge in was this idea that they would get certain commands that they considered to be weighty or important, and they'd get other commands which they'd consider to be light or less important, and essentially analysing God's word as a way of basically deciding which bits they wanted to obey and which bits they weren't so keen on. And it's at this point that Jesus again challenges the motive behind the question, and he gives the statement that we read at the end of chapter 22. Perhaps the Pharisees were approaching Jesus here to test his knowledge. Um, And perhaps, no doubt, they were looking again to try and undermine Jesus' ministry by getting him to say something controversial and so further in their own superiority. And as it turns out, Jesus answered them in a way that perhaps they weren't expecting, the Pharisees, almost in a quite a mundane, almost sort of boring way, if you like. I'll read it again. Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You are to love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now, devoted Jews of this time, and no doubt the Pharisees and the Sadducees themselves that Jesus was addressing, they'd know this portion of Scripture inside out. It comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. They'd recite it every day, they recite this this portion of Scripture, and it might seem a, a little bit of a cop out to them, perhaps. You, you, know, you can almost hear the sighs of disappointment in their voices. You know, come on, Jesus, we know that one. We recite it every day. You know, we've come for a theological debate. We're we past that. You know, let's talk about tithing or working on the Sabbath or let, let's pick out some of the nuance of the law and have a, a good old theological scrap. And Jesus cuts them off almost, and he says, "You know what? You know this portion of the Word so well. Yet how unfamiliar you are with its true meaning." You want to have a theological debate, let me save you the trouble. The whole law hangs on these two phrases. And you know what? Chucking in the prophets as well. In essence, he's saying to them and us: if you forget everything else in Scripture regarding holiness and obedience to God, in the whole Bible, then I want you to remember this phrase and this commandment. Um, in this passage, sorry, in the Gospels, you'll find Jesus repeat this passage from Deuteronomy 6 three times. You'll find it in Luke, we read it um, a little bit, a few weeks ago, sorry, Um, prior to Jesus telling the parable of the Good Samaritan. You'll also find the story mirrored in Mark chapter 12, where we learn that one of the Pharisees actually begins to understand the true meaning of this commandment, that it's not all about religious outward observance, but about true relationship with God. In other words, in in all of scripture, this this little section is quoted a total of four times, and I think something's quoted four times in the Bible, it's probably worth listening to and assuming that that God's trying to tell us something, I think. So when we come to these familiar verses and we look at them again, what's your reaction? I know what mine is. um, Intimidation a little bit, possibly a little bit of guilt. um, An acute awareness of my failure to live up to these great commands. Essentially, I'm to love God and those around me with everything that I have. How can I even get close to that? So as we move on, I want to ask the question, if, we'd, if we're aware of, that we don't love God the way we should do, what do we love with all our heart, soul, mind and strength? What are our deepest desires, if we're honest with ourselves? Now, there's a program on TV, you might have heard of it, it's called Game of Thrones. Um, if you don't know what Game of Thrones is, I really can't explain it up here, I'll be here all night. Um, but basically, in a nutshell, it's a program set in kind of fictional medieval times Um, and there's lots of different noble houses, and essentially all they try and do is kill each other. Um, It's basically a six-season bloodbath, um, which I'm not really advertising it very well, am I? Um, But in it, there's a character called Tyrion Lannister. Um, He's a a dwarf. um, I really hope that's the politically correct term, by the way. I'm very sorry if it's not. Um, And Tyrion, despite what he lacks physically, he's managed to last all six seasons without getting killed. Uh, And I was listening to a, a commentary on his character not long ago, and this person was saying that, Tyrion's lasted so long because he's really, really good at finding people's deepest desires. He can work out that by the way people act, they act like homing beacons towards what they want the most and what they love the most. And he finds ways to offer people what they want the most and in so doing, he'll manipulate them to his own ends. It is the same true of us. If people looked at our actions in our day-to-day lives, would they be able to work out what we value the most? I'm ashamed to say that if people looked at my life for a week, you wouldn't necessarily always see God at the top of my list of priorities. So as we go through, I'm guessing some of the thoughts that might be running through your mind about things that you love would be stuff like your wife, or your kids, or your friends, or your clothes, or your Xbox, or any of that type of stuff. They're all fine, well and good. I'm not about to start saying that you should stop loving these things. But if I'm honest with myself, certainly when I'm at my worst... I know that in my heart of hearts, my deepest desire and my deepest affection is for myself and my own glory. And everything that's encapsulated with that, my love for my own reputation and what people think of me, my love for my own comfort and my own pleasure. Paul touched on it a little bit last week, the love for my own security, be it financial or health-wise or otherwise. Essentially, my love for my own happiness. And when I'm at my worst, these things start being... and these things start being threatened. It's amazing how quickly that sin can creep in. And God's word can be subtly replaced by me and my own agenda. I think it's really, really appropriate that Jesus chooses to unfurl this commandment at this particular point in Matthew. Because here we see a wonderful living example of two groups of people that are completely wrapped up in themselves and their own reputation. In this particular case, the pursuit of their own intellectual reputation among the people. And they think that they'll achieve this by a verbal war with Jesus. And through it, they only end up exposing their true characters. That how well people think of them is more important to them than God's word. Jesus describes them in Mark chapter 12 like this. He says, watch out for teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes. They like to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues. They like the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for show they make lengthy prayers. These men will be punished most severely. And You know what, in all honesty, if someone started offering me the best seat in the synagogue or started giving me respect in the street or the places of honour at banquets, I'd probably quite enjoy it as well, I'm not going to lie. I'm not really going to stand in judgment over the Pharisees for the way they acted because I know that in my heart of hearts I have the capacity to be like that as well. And in terms of the culture that we live in, the culture that we exist in, it's becoming increasingly more and more individualistic around us as we see it, don't we? We hear phrases like, you've got to look after number one. You know, you've got to follow your heart's desire, your own destiny. You've got to learn to love yourself. These are all phrases that we hear. A section of the famous Invictus poem that's often connected with Nelson Mandela has a line in it. that says this, I am the master of my fate and I am the captain of my soul. It's all about me, isn't it, and my own destiny we live in a culture of individualism and self-service almost even in my own sinfulness while i'm preparing this talk i think you know what if i do a really good sermon people might respect me more people might give me more kudos but if i look at these verses i see absolutely no room for self-fulfillment sometimes we use the phrase in christian terms though we countercultural. we like to say something countercultural in the bible to the culture that we live in and i'd probably go so far as to say that You'd struggle to find something more countercultural than this in the whole of Scripture. But as we go on, I want to point out, as I said at the beginning, that rather be, be, than be intimidated by this verse, rather than beat ourselves over the head for our lack of obedience to it, I just want to look at some brief reasons why loving God with all our heart, mind, and strength is a logical response that of a God who wishes to share in relationship with us. And also, loving God and giving Him His rightful place is the most. Effective form of self fulfillment that we could actually wish to pursue. There's a little verse in Psalm 103, verse 2, that says this. It's actually the Psalm that 10,000 Reasons, the song we sing in church, is derived from. It says this Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not all his benefits. I think sometimes as Christians we can have pretty short memories, can't we? So, what I want to do now, just very quickly, is just remind us of some of the staggering benefits of God and hopefully be drawn to him, to love him as we should through this. So reason number one, we should love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength because he created us and because he made us. Now in this day and age, the idea of a creator God has perhaps never been under more scrutiny. If you go back a hundred or so years ago, the idea of a creator God would never have been questioned by anyone. However, fast forward to 2016, in the postmodern age that we live in, everything has to be questioned and rightly so, I think, to some extent. But people's personal view of the truth has become acceptable so long as it doesn't infringe on the next man's personal view of the truth. Linking back a little bit to what I said earlier about the kind of individualistic society that we live in. And to make the claim of a universal creator God is not only viewed as intolerant, but it's also viewed as kind of intellectual suicide. What's become known as intelligent design has become demonised in universities and academic communities and it's often a stumbling block to people that are unfamiliar with the Christian faith. Now, I don't want to dive too much into creationism. I'm pretty new to this sort of thing. I'll probably embarrass myself. But what I do wish to do is point out that as Christians, we're not to shy away from or be embarrassed by the fact that we were created by our Father God. We live in an age when it's easy to play down the importance of God as creator and forget that actually God's creative power has a great deal of bearing on our relationship with him. And it's a massive reason why we should be drawn to fall in love with him all the more. And I want to turn very quickly to a portion of the Bible, which, which I love. Um, it's been Instagrammed to death many times, and for good reason. I think it's a great piece of the Bible. And it comes from Psalm 139, verse 13. And it says this, For you created my innermost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Now those of you that are parents in Christchurch, I think today you've got a real reason to be very, very proud and thankful to God. Myself and Holly, we've had the chance to get to know some of your kids and I think every single one of them are absolutely brilliant. Um, you can probably hear him in there in a few minutes making some kind of infernal racket. Uh, and that's great, they're brilliant. They're absolutely crazy, some of them, but you know what a testament to God's creative power that we can see in your kids when we come here on a Sunday. And as parents, you'll know that although you'll, you'll have a great deal of influence on your children um, and they, they will take on some of your character traits in a way, there's still a little part of them that will be utterly unique to them that you won't be able to replicate. And, and I think that's because... We can see in this verse that it's God that's actually knit them together in their mother's womb. And we're very fortunate, myself and Holly, today to be expecting our first child in September. Um, and every now and again she's got this pregnancy app thing on her phone. Um, and she'll say to me something like, ah, the, the spine's being formed this week. Or some kind of crazy neurological stuff's happening to, to give the baby a sense of consciousness or awareness. Or baby's eyesight starting to be formed this week. Now this is all massively technical scientific stuff which I have a very limited understanding of. But I'm hoping that it'll be attributed to me that I'm the baby's father. But I didn't do any of that wonderful stuff. I just did the fun day at the beginning. And, <laughs> and off the baby goes. He's growing and he's developing and he's changing. You know, how powerless we are and how powerless I am over this creative process. Therefore, God has to take all the glory and all my affection for accomplishing his work in creation and giving us everything that he's given us. But how should this idea affect our relationship with God in the here and now it might seem fun to muse over these ideas in a sermon but how how is this going to draw my affection for God in the way that he requires of me in Matthew 22 when I get to work tomorrow morning I think as a direct consequence of God creating us we also learn point number two God provides for us and to demonstrate this I just want to turn your attention quickly to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, you don't have to turn there I'll just try and summarise it as quickly as I can Well, essentially in this little section, the Apostle Paul is addressing a church that's in a little bit of turmoil. There's various issues going on in this Corinthian church that Paul's having to straighten out. In chapter 3, verse 3, we learn that Paul highlights that there's jealousy and there's strife among the people. It's theological boasting over which particular preacher they follow, whether it be Paul or Apollos or someone else. And verse 18 actually points out that some of them are getting puffed up in their own wisdom. Until finally we get to verse 7 of chapter 4, which says... In response to this, what do you have that you did not receive? And if you received it, why do you act as though you didn't? In other words, if you worship God as creator, then you should know that absolutely everything you have, right down to the brain inside your head, comes from him. In creating us, God doesn't leave us to our own devices, but he intimately provides for us everything that we have. We hear this phrase sometimes in our culture, don't we? He's a self-made man, or this guy, he works really hard. He pulled himself up by his bootstraps, implying that certain people can attribute their own success purely to themselves. Without wanting to take away the hard work and dedication that a lot of people put into their lives, I've got to reconcile with the fact that even my work ethic and my abilities come from God. Sometimes I'll get home from work after a tough day. I'll sit down on the sofa and I'll make my mind up that I'm camping out and I am not moving for anyone. And Holly will get home after an equally hard day, and she'll look at me and go, you know what, Joe, you think that just because you've done a hard day's work, you've earned the right to just sit there and vegetate for a night? You know, come on, there's washing to be done, there's bins to be taken out, there's shelves to be put up. You know, and I'm thinking in my head, I've earned this. I'm not moving. You know, you should be bringing me grapes or fine wine or one of those oriental fans to waft me for a bit on the sofa. But she's dead right, isn't she? I've not earned the right to anything. The very fact that I can get up, I can go to work, I can earn money, and I can live in a house and own a couch is all down to what God has provided for me. What do you have that you did not receive? The second part of the text from Matthew says this, we are to love our neighbours as ourselves. I think this phrase has become somewhat a little bit of a parody of itself in our culture to a certain extent. We use the phrase when we want to convey some kind of vague sort of niceness or community spirit. But If I recognise that God created and provided for everyone around me, not just myself then this should affect how I treat the people around me. I'm acutely aware that there are people in this world that have had awful painful experiences and they have probably every right to think that God's not provided for me at all. And the scripture makes it perfectly clear that none of us merit anything before God and every blessing we receive is purely out of his gracefulness. Now hopefully this should lead me away from any kind of sense of superiority towards my neighbor or the people around me. When I meet people around me that don't know God or who live differently from the way I do or they don't share my values or they possibly slightly annoy me, I need to remind myself that the only thing that separates me from you is the unmerited grace of God. In my line of work, I, I work among homeless people and people that have come out of prison quite recently and I'm pretty much on a day-to-day basis, I come across a lot of people that you would probably cross the street to try and avoid. Violent people, people with awful addictions, people that don't use manners when they speak to you people that are out to serve themselves. And then I look at the background. I look at how the parents treated them. I look at the examples that they had growing up. I look at the things that they've witnessed and experienced in their lives, and I'm led time and time again to think, you know what? If I was born into the set of circumstances that you were, I'd be the same as you. It doesn't surprise me that you are the way you are. I've received grace and mercy from God in abundance, and there are an awful lot of people out there that haven't. So let's be motivated to share his grace and his mercy with our neighbours. Let's be motivated to love God more and more for the blessing and the provision that he's given to us. And lastly, God is our redeemer and he is our saviour. It's all well and good to believe and be thankful to God because he's created us and because he's provided for us. But I'm sure there's an awful lot of people out there who believe this as well in one form or another without it making too much difference to their lives. And the Bible makes it clear that if we love ourselves more than we love God, or if we put in something else in the place of God, the problem can't be rectified by merely thinking a little bit more about the blessings that he gives us in our day-to-day lives. This won't be sufficient for us to give God the praise and the affection that he desires of us in the verse we looked at at the end of Matthew. The Bible makes it clear in Ephesians chapter 2 that left to our natural selves, our selfishness and our sin actually renders us as dead before God. Ephesians 2.1 says this, You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. So for us to enter into a relationship with God whereby we can love him with everything that we have, something supernatural needs to take place. Dead people can't love anything, can they? And when we read that we're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind and strength, we can often fool ourselves into thinking about this text the way the Pharisees did. That God is exalted so far above us that we must strain with every bit of effort that we've got to be able to love him for no other reason than the fact that he's told us to. But I want to draw your attention quickly to Ephesians cha- uh, sorry, Exodus chapter 20, where God lays out the Ten Commandments before the children of Israel. Chapter 20, verse 1 and 2 says this. God spoke these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. In other words, look at everything that I've done for you. God, He's intimately watched over the children, the, His children, and brought them out of slavery. He's kept them all the way through the desert, and He says, "Because I am your God, and because we're in a father-child relationship with each other, I want you to love me by way of response to this." And He says to us here today, "I've sent my Son Jesus to die on a cross to save you from the punishment that your self-centeredness deserves. I've created you." provided for you and i've saved you and in order to seal his relationship with us he sent his son to become human we have a tangible relatable and real savior that we can experience and that we can know very quickly if you're here for the first time if you're unfamiliar with christ church or if you're still exploring some of the ideas surrounding christianity you might possibly think that's half an hour of my life i won't get back but i just want to say to you that Right now that there are things in your life that will be your first priority, you'll have a list of priorities in your life. And I'm pretty certain if you go 10 or 15 years down the line, you'll have a different set of priorities. But the Bible claims very clearly that God has created you and he's provided for you and he wants to give you eternal security through the death of Jesus. And he asks you to think about your eternal priorities here today and make a decision regarding the claims that he's made in his word. If you want to question me afterwards about anything that I've said then I'll point you straight to Ash because he gets paid for to do that type of thing <laughs> but for those of us that claim Jesus as our saviour, for those of us that know him, because Jesus has died for us, because he's risen again and because He saved us from our sins he not only gives us the ability to be able to love him as we should but he also gives us the greatest reason for us to love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul with all of our mind and with all of our strength